Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 102 of the Fabulously Keto podcast with Martha Tettenborn. Martha approached me to come on the podcast after hearing us on another podcast. Martha's story includes healing from cancer and coping with chemo, which is a topic we haven't covered before. As well as being a registered dietitian, she's also a primal health coach. So let me tell you a bit about Martha. Martha Tettenborn, RD, is a registered dietitian and certified primal health coach with over 30 years of experience working in many areas of nutrition. She currently works in long-term care with a focus on nursing homes and gerontology. Her private health coach practice, The Cancer Doula, promotes a low-carb, whole-foods-based approach to disease prevention and cancer symptom management. When diagnosed with stage 1 ovarian cancer, Martha began exploring the research of the disease and discovered the science of cancer metabolism. This led her to develop and use a protocol of a ketogenic diet with targeted therapeutic fasting to significantly impact her response to chemotherapy. Inspired by her own journey, Martha wants to help others see cancer differently as an experience that will give you strength, wisdom and more love for your body and life than ever before. Her experience, strategies and resources, plus the science behind them, are outlined in her book Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting and a Kick-Ass Attitude to, to Power Through Cancer. A featured speaker at the Low Carb Long Weekend Summit and on numerous podcasts, Martha shares her knowledge as a dietitian and her experience as a cancer patient to inform others about the power of metabolic interventions to support conventional cancer treatment. Martha also instructs courses teaching the ketogenic approach to cancer treatment for the Nutrition Network and Udemy. A cancer survivor since 2018, Martha is an avid hiker, cyclist, live theatre, backstage crew member and a wannabe world adventurer. She lives on the beautiful Bruce Peninsula in central Ontario, Canada, with her husband Mike, a noisy cockatiel named Ziggy and a flock of backyard chickens. Let's go and hear the interview with Martha. Welcome Martha to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Oh, it is fabulous to be here, talking <laughs> to someone on the other side of the pond. <laughs> yep. And we're doing this today because last week you had no internet. The quarter of the country had no internet. That's amazing. It was absolutely wild. Canada went dark 
for an entire 18, 20 hour period. Yeah. Um, they said internet traffic for the entire country was down 25% last Friday. And Gosh. yeah. Thank you for being flexible. <laughs> <laughs> so as people can probably guess more or less where you are, we always ask, where in the world are you? So perhaps you can pin it down because Canada's a big country. It sure is. Um, I live in central Ontario. I'm about three hours north of Toronto. So if you look at a map and that great huge body, you know, group of lakes, they call the Great Lakes in the center of the continent. Um, the one in the middle is called Lake Huron. And it's broken into two parts with a big peninsula separating Lake Huron from Georgian Bay. And I live on that peninsula. Ah. Uh, that pins it down. I live in cottage country, three <laughs> hours outside of the big city. Uh, it's very beautiful here. Yeah. I was in Toronto. Toronto? Is that how they say it? Toronto? Toronto. In, yeah. <laughs> in 2019. So, um, and I managed to visit some cousins that I hadn't seen for maybe 20 years and um got to see them and go out on their boat and swim in lake ontario so that's good oh fabulous toronto is a beautiful city and it's a very multicultural city and for the most part it's a very safe city and has great entertainment and theater and food and all that but it's lovely to go visit and i love being able to drive home again afterwards <laughs> come back out come back away from it yeah yeah <laughs> um so let's start by finding out a little bit about you and your story and how you came to low carb because you, you're a dietitian and how the renegade dietitian came to low carb. Um, so a little bit about your story and then, you know, go into as much detail as you want and we can cover all of it now or do some of it a bit later, however you feel. Sure. Well, yes, I'm a registered dietitian and I have been a dietitian for about 35 years. So I trained, of course, at university in the area era of low fat and cholesterol being the devil and, you know, eggs being dangerous and all that kind of stuff. That was all cutting edge science back in the early 80s um, when I was in university. And so I spent most of my career following the, the nutritional guidelines and trying to help people um, to live healthier lives, both as inpatients and outpatients and uh, in long-term care, where I've spent the last 20 years um, and in private practice. And I must say, most of the time, I wasn't really being all that successful. And at the same time, I struggled with my own extra 20 or 30 pounds. Um, and most of the things that I tried to do weren't terribly successful for me either. And that's really what brought me to... Um, to low carb in terms of trying. I mean, I, I spent years trashing Dr. Atkins because I mean, all dietitians had their own line on how to trash Dr. Atkins at the time. <laughs> um, in fact, I used to hand out a paper that was, you know, why this is a bad diet sort of thing. Um, but once I actually was willing to open my mind to the concept that fats weren't necessarily so dangerous, and, um, and started incorporating some fat into the diet myself, like reducing sugar in particular. I'd never used much sugar, but, um, I loved sweet baked things and that kind of stuff. Um, I found that I was finally able to, um, control my weight without hunger, without being miserable. And as I got further into it, 
I discovered that I could live my life without uh, periods of being, you know, hangry and, and having the low blood sugar drops that I would have every single morning at 11 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after a carby breakfast. What, what led you to, you know, what led you to start introducing more fats into your diet? Well, you must have had a, you must have had a something that, that sort of sparked that interest in why well, actually why? yeah it's something kind of weird um in 2007 i was down in one of the big cities nearby and i was hanging around in a chapters bookstore which is like a barnes and noble it's a huge ginormous bookstore while a um while my nephew was doing a music festival actually and um and i found a book called the shangri-la diet by seth roberts he was a scientist, a researcher, um, a, a, one of the first biohackers. And he had determined that he was trying to figure out the whole set point weight thing. And, and he was looking at the brain connections between calories and flavor. And he was experimenting. He was one of those N equals one experimenters. And he was trying to consume calories with it, with no flavor attached and see what happened. And basically what happened is it turned the appetite off. So he was suggesting that he had the, what he called the Shangri-La diet, which was this use of um, zero flavor calories, usually um, oil, vegetable oil. He tried it with sugar too. And, and that worked in some ways for some people as well. But, um, and, and, and it was just so far out there. It was so weird. And, and, and yet it appealed to me in some way. And so I took the book home and I read it and I started trying to incorporate it. And I mean, I, my appetite changed dramatically almost instantly when I started actually putting shots of oil into my life. Um, and I dropped weight. I, I went bounding through set points that I'd been stuck on for years. And that was sort of the, the start of the, well, I guess fat isn't so evil. Um, you know, open, opened my mind and that got me going on to other things. And eventually I ended up at Mark's Daily Apple at Mark Sisson. Yeah. And the primal blueprint. Um, which again, you know, someone who's wanted to, um, to make the world healthier. And so he had a huge active forum at that point on his website and I got involved there and I was again using low carb. Um, and that's really where it came from. That's where it started. I was very active in Mark's Daily Apple um, back in, you know, before 2010 sort of thing, like fairly early in the process. So eventually I wanted to kind of put my money where my mouth was. And so I did the um, health, the primal health coach training mm-hmm. yeah. through Mark, through Mark's uh, program. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, add that to sort of to my credentials and opened a private practice. Um, but I live in a small city. There's 20,000 people in, in the nearby city. And, um, I got no support from the local docs. I was trying to do it as an, as an in-person, uh, private practice, helping people with healthy aging, avoiding metabolic syndrome and chronic disease, that kind of stuff. The local family docs gave me zero support. I never once got a referral. They wouldn't even let me come into their um, practice and do a lunch and learn sort of thing because they had their own dietitians who, of course, touted the party line. Mm. So I 
Um, all of that, like I was, I was still working in long-term care. I had the private practice. Um, and then in the summer of 2018, I got, um, broadsided by a, well, actually in the fall of 2018 by a cancer diagnosis. And that kind of sent me off in, you know, on, into a different direction. Um, so yeah, so summer of 2018, I discovered I had a large ovarian cyst in my abdomen. Nobody thought it was cancer. It was just a big fluid filled cyst. Um, and it was summer in Canada. So, I mean, things just kind of putts along until the fall. Um, it was the end of September before I had it removed and I had it, um, removed laparoscopically. So they went in with a small surgery, um, ruptured this cyst that drained one and a half liters of fluid like it was huge um and then pulled the the deflated cyst out like and my ovaries and um it was six days later that they called me and said you know come come back and see the surgeon tomorrow morning bring your husband right (laughs) yeah and it's like oh crap i know what that means yeah yeah. So, so I found out in early October of 2018 that I had, uh, stage one, um, high grade serous ovarian cancer. How did you feel? Oh, absolutely gobsmacked. Like just, um, I mean, I was so, I felt so healthy, right? I was 58. I, I was active. I felt like a million bucks. I had nothing hurt. Um, I'd made it through menopause. <laughs> I was, you know, kind of on the other side of that. And, um, I, I took zero medications. I don't, I was just smug. I was, you know, and, and my identity was wrapped up in being that healthy because I had this private practice where I wanted to help other people be awesome in middle age and, and as they aged. So it felt like someone had attacked my identity. Yeah. Were you low carb at that point? You low carb? Oh, I'd, I'd been low carb for years, but not keep, not in ketosis. Just yeah, low carb. Yeah. 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 Just low carb and, you know, pretty clean. I mean, I try to eat local. I try to eat seasonal. Um, you know, I'd skirt around the edges of keto most of the time. And it didn't mean that if, you know, if I was somewhere and there was something offered that I wanted that I wouldn't take it, but I was pretty careful about things like, you know, using organic grains, if we were going to have grains in the house and stuff like that. Um, so so yeah, I, I was already well in ketosis. Yeah. You, you, you're, you're following a, a, a healthy lifestyle and that exactly. you feel healthy and you are healthy. And now you've been, um, what's you said it's side swiped or whatever with yeah, yeah. diagnosis that must've been, I think any diagnosis of cancer must be devastating, but it must be even worse. I don't know. I often think about how I would feel um, because you do, you do feel healthy. So you can't believe that something like that happens. I know. And ovarian cancer is one that they call it the cancer that whispers. Um, And, and your viewers should, your, your listeners should know this. And it's one of the things I try and get into every every opportunity I can is that because your ovaries are so precious, they are the source of the eggs. They are buried so deep into your body cavity, into your, into your pelvis that they can develop cancer without you knowing for a long time. 
Mm. Um, and the symptoms of ovarian cancer are quite vague and nondescript. So, I mean, it's things like feeling kind of full or maybe some constipation or some early satiety or a bit of bloating. And a lot of women, especially menopausal women, um, we just write it, write that off as being life, right? We don't take, and we don't take it seriously because we're not so good at looking after ourselves as we are as looking after everybody else. So, I mean, by the time I realized I had a cyst in my abdomen, the darn thing was 16 centimeters across when they diagnosed it. Like, how did I get that far without really being aware? When I look back, it's like, I used to, if I rolled over in the, in the, in my sleep, like if I rolled over from one side to the other at night, there was kind of a feeling like something was shifting inside. But I really, I, again, didn't pay any attention to it. You know, my, my summer like hiking pants, which were a non-stretchy sort of nylon-y fabric, they didn't do up comfortably that summer. But I also hadn't sort of lost that five pounds that I normally gain and lose every winter and every spring. It just hadn't come off that year. And again, I just kind of ignored it. Um, once I realized it was there, then, you know, yeah, I was way more aware of it. I mean, I was just, I, I was literally having to dress differently because it was like, by the time they took it out, it was bigger than a cantaloupe. It was like being five months pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> When I'd sit down in the chair, I'd have to pull the waistband of my pants up over the bump. You know, it was crazy. So that was but, really noticeable because I had a, a tumor on my ovaries when I was 18. And oh. they said it was the size of a soccer ball when they took it out. Holy. But I, yeah, I, when I would touch my stomach, it was, it was um, hard. And I'd say to my mom, look, my stomach is hard. And she'd say, go to the doctor. But even then I hated doctors, so I didn't go. Um, but then I, then it started to play up and having pain. But I must have had it for years before they actually, firstly, it caused enough pain for me to go to the doctor. And secondly, for them to diagnose it because I was only 18. So I, I'm sure they at that time they weren't expecting it to be a tumor or cancer or anything like that. They were fobbed off with a urinary infection, kidney infection, all these things. Yeah. One doctor took me seriously and sent me for a scan. Um, That's all it takes is an ultrasound. I mean, especially if it's a fluid filled thing, you know, it's just, it's a big black hole in your abdomen on the ultrasound. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. Well, actually they'd done, they put dye in my veins because they thought it was kidney. Mm. And that's how they discovered it. I was really young. I, I was completely unaware of what was going on. Yeah, you would be. You had time to get used to your adult body at 18. Yeah. And it wasn't cancer? No, it was a benign cyst. That's wonderful. <laughs> but they took with it, they took one and a half ovaries and, and my appendix they took away. Mm-hmm. That made it a bit troublesome in having children. So Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's one good thing. I was done with all the hardware at that point. So, you know, willing, willing to have it. Out. I, I wasn't, um, anxious to have it out. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people that sort of feels like, you know, if God put it there, it's there for a reason. Yeah, me too. And yeah. And so like, I'm not having unnecessary surgery. Thank you very much. So it was, and, and I'm a surgery virgin pretty much prior to this episode. 
you know, and I'm certainly a pill virgin and, you know, it was so hard for me to, to become a patient, first of all, um, and to admit to the vulnerability of that. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> ah, you know what? There's a silver lining to everything. And I mean, here I am talking to you on a podcast and it's because I had cancer. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. So we got the diagnosis. Tell us what happened after that. So I was sent off to a larger cancer center. We, like I say, we live in rural Ontario. And so our, our catchment cancer center is, is in the city of London, um, Ontario. And, uh, and it's about three hours away. So I was sent down to a doctor to see a doctor down there. The wonderful, amazing thing is that out of that entire large cancer center, I was assigned the same doctor that my girlfriend here had when she went through breast cancer, which was rather amazing because you know, there's probably 40 docs in that building. And I got the same one that she was able to say, oh, he's wonderful. He's just, he's kind and he's wonderful. Turns out the man went to high school in my hometown. <laughs> we practically knew each other. I mean, when we started, when we started making the connections, which is again, like eight hours away where I grew up. Right. And we found out the last the last visit we got together that we were actually from the same hometown. We'd gone to high school, two different high schools, but at the same time, we'd actually been to a drama festival together back in like the <laughs> 1970s. Who knew? Yeah. Um, but I mean, so yeah, so we, we went off to see this doctor and, and it was because the cyst was ruptured inside my abdomen, it's considered a spill. And that means that the cancer cells could get loose inside your abdominal cavity. And high-grade serous carcinoma, ovarian cancer, is a cancer that is quite, it likes to be sticky. It likes to, it's not so much for escaping into your lymph glands and going all over your body as much as it likes to stay in your abdominal cavity and see new tumors like on the wall of your abdomen or on the omentum, which is the fatty layer that kind of holds everything together, or on you know the outside of your bowel or your bladder, those sorts of things. Um, so... The two, you know, like I say, I never had a tumor resident in my body while I knew I had cancer, which mm. is kind of an unusual situation. By the time I knew I had cancer, it was gone, but we didn't know if there were cancer cells circulating in my body. And therefore it was highly recommended that I do chemotherapy. Um, because it's a lot easier to, you know, get them now than get them once they start seeing new tumors. Yeah. So. When when they suggested that, did you did you just say yes or did you go away and do some research? What? Oh God, I went away and did research. Are you kidding? Me and Doctor Google were best friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't take anything laying down. Um, I'm I'm all about the data and and of course having been already a bit of a renegade as far as you know medical treatment and and the whole low carb thing i knew that i wasn't you know going to just do it without knowing why and whether it was really good idea and what was the research and um so no i came home and i mean i said probably and then i came home and i did a lot of research and my husband and i spent a lot of time talking about things mm. um he's very much trusting of allopathic medicine and I'm not so much. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the things about getting a cancer diagnosis 
is that you have to tell everyone else. <laughs> and that's really, really hard. Harder than I thought it would be. Mm. Um, because when you tell people, um, you have to kind of absorb their response to it. And, and you have the people that matter in your life, you have to tell them in person, you know, whether that's in like in person or like face to face or a phone call or something. You don't just kind of put it on Facebook, by the way, I've got a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So in the book, you went because you've written a book called Hacking Chemo. And in the book, you went into detail about that. So perhaps touch on that, because I thought that was really interesting about how different people have different responses. So maybe you could talk around the different responses that you get. Yes, for sure. Um, when, like I say, when you, when you have the cancer diagnosis and you need to share it, people will absorb that. And it's not just about you. They feel awful for you and you have to absorb that emotion. You know, you get the, Oh, I'm so sorry. And I mean, it almost felt like it was behooving on me to say, it's okay. It's stage one. We got this, you know, like, so I was reassur- I was busy reassuring them as opposed to anything the other way around. But also, every time you tell somebody, you don't know what their life experience with cancer is mm. or any or any other chronic illness, right? But particularly with cancer, because it, it's that thing that everybody's terrified of. So what I found, which was really interesting to me, was that some people leaned into helping me and supporting me and, you know, wanting to, to know what was going on with me in my life. Um, people that, that I kind of almost considered acquaintances were like, anything I can do to help. Do you need to drive somewhere? Do you, you know, let me know if you need think, something picked up, whatever. They were, they were there for me. And other people that I would have thought would be more like that actually pulled away. Mm. But I don't blame them because you don't know what somebody else's life experience is with cancer. And so to have someone that, you know, that, that, you know, get sick, it, it might spark something inside them that's terrifying or upsetting. And so they need to pull away for their own, um, protection, you know, their own emotional protection. And so I had, you know, I had people that, that just kind of backed out of my life for that period of time. And then there's people that want you to just be what you always have been. And so they're pissed off at you <laughs> for not being that person. Yeah. You know, um, I, I carry a lot of hats in my, I wear a lot of hats in my life. I have a lot of responsibility, as I had mentioned in our pre-show talk. Um, I have a son with a special needs. Um, and he's an adult who lives independently in town on his own, but I still actively parent him. Um, you know, I, I have my jobs. I have, I'm a wife. I'm a pastor at my church. Um, I'm a volunteer in a number of different things. I, I had been all signed up to be the wardrobe lead on our little theater play that was going to be put on that fall. And, and after the diagnosis, I had to call the director and say, I'm sorry. Like I, I have to back out. She, she's had cancer. She, or the stage manager, she's had cancer. So she totally got it. (laughs) She was fine, but. It was hard for me to have to tell all those people that I had to do that. Um, so, so yeah, the, the response of other people, even like my workplace, 
I, I went, I work in a nursing home with a hundred residents. So, you know, probably a couple hundred staff. And I, I just wrote a letter and put it on the fridge door in the staff room because I'm not a staff member. I'm, I'm a contracted employee, but I've been there for like at that point over 15 years. And, um, and I just put a letter up that said, this is what I'm going to be going through. Um, I'm, I'm staying here. The management's being really flexible with my time. I'm going to look different. I'm going to be bald. Um, my hours probably won't be as, as, you know, consistent as usual. Um, I'd appreciate your good thoughts and healing wishes and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I had people stopping by my office door that I would have considered just the barest of acquaintances, you know, stopping to say, you know, I wish you the best and, and so on. And then other people who didn't. So yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. I always feel that you never know. You never know how what how to respond is quite often and whether you're intruding on someone's time if you phone and say how are you and then what do you say it's really it's hard to know what to do for the best. Yep. Yeah, it is. And I mean you can say like, you know, anything you need, let me know. And there will be people who feel like they can reach out and others who feel like they can't. Mm. So one of the things I talk about in the in the book in the, the non-keto part in more of the sort of social aspect of or the emotional aspect of cancer is building a circle of support around you. You know, so having, if someone said like, we'd like to, you know, make a meal and bring it over, be willing to accept that. And often the meal wasn't keto. You know, some of my friends could make an effort at a low carb meal, but other ones couldn't. They just send over a casserole, but that's fine because that was feeding my husband. Yeah. Right? You know, feeding my caregiver was, was really helpful for me too. Um, so I appreciate all those things that were done. Yeah. And the other thing, cause you said your husband being the, your caregiver was about acknowledging him mm-hmm. talking to others. And that was, you really made a big point about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've been in healthcare for years and I've had a special needs child for years and I, I was always mum. You go to an appointment for my son of any sort and I was mom. Like I didn't have my own role. I didn't have, like I didn't have my own name. You know, I was mom. Like everything was just kind of in relation to, to him. And I saw that happening to my husband when I was going through the cancer process of the clinics and the meetings and the, and so on, you know. Um, and, it's easy for, for that person to not feel appreciated. And it's easy for people to, to just kind of not, not acknowledge the amount of physical and emotional wear that happens to someone who is supporting a person going through cancer. Mm. Um, again, that doctor in London, bless his heart. The first time he met us, he, he learned that Mike loved the theater. And every time we had a follow up appointment, he would remember to ask Mike how it was going for the theater. Cause Mike was in a play. He was on stage during my cancer treatments. And, uh, and so the doc was always asking him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. Yeah. So then as you went through your chemo, you started using fasting to help you through the chemo. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Um, Right from the beginning, actually. I, I never did do a chemo treatment without fasting. Okay. Uh, 
I thought you did one or something. You did. No, no, okay. I refuse to be my own uh, control subject. <laughs> <laughs> I was an N equals one experiment. There was no control group. <laughs> yeah, before you tell us about how the, the actual fasting through the chemo, how did you come across that? Because we've had on recently Dr. Jim Waller on episode 93, and he was saying that he would recommend to patients if they're having chemo to um, fast through the chemo and that the um, the people giving out the chemo, I don't know all the fancy names, um, need to know because you actually need less chemotherapy um, and you're going to get a different response. So how did you come across that? Was it something you just felt intuitively that, you um needed to do or had you read something about it oh no there's there's research there's good research um so uh dr walter longo in california had done a fair bit of work on fasting and chemotherapy um using everything from like single-celled organisms up through mice and and all the way to people to humans um he had proven clearly that fasting um will have a good impact on chemo in terms of making it more um, potent or so it it's makes it easier for the chemotherapy to work on the cancer cells so one of the main things that needed to prove was that it wasn't going to be detrimental to the chemotherapy process um, and that people experienced significantly fewer side effects when they fasted through chemo um, he published a case study in 2009 i believe it was um, of, of about 10 people who used fasting through some of their treatments and not others. Everybody was different in this case study. And then he, um, he studied them, surveyed them for their side effect, uh, profile. And it was very clear that people would have less side effects when they fasted. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it even became cumulative. Like if someone fasted the first couple and then didn't fast the third one, but then went back to fasting for the last couple, you would go back to having like a, a better response. It was significantly better, particularly the GI stuff, the the nausea and, and throwing up and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I wanted a piece of that action because I was, like I say, completely drug naive, terrified of chemotherapy. I mean, it's basically poison. Yeah. You know, so I, I did a lot of studying, did a lot of reading of, of various research. I read Thomas Seyfried's, um, research on, um, on keto and stressing cancer cells and that kind of stuff and the whole mitochondria and metabolic approach to cancer, which literally I did not know about before I started looking. I had no idea there was a metabolic aspect to cancer. No. And I, I mean, I can go off on a tangent about that because I got really pissed off. <laughs> Um, which is why I wrote the book, but, but anyways, um, so I, I determined for myself that I was going to fast for, for 36 hours prior to chemo. And again, this was based on the reading and the research studies that I'd read and 24 hours after the chemo. And what that does, it does a couple of things. It stresses the cancer cells because you are not supplying the cancer cells with the fuel that they have to have in order to grow. Yeah. And cancer cells don't know how to turn off, so they are feeling like they got to grow all the time. Secondly, and more importantly, I have discovered, actually, 
is that is the effect that fasting has on your non-cancerous or your healthy cells. Okay. Because as an evolutionary adaptation, if we go through a period of no fuel supply, like fasting, yep. you know, not, not catching the beast, right? When you're on the savanna, um, then our bodies have a, a really good response. We slow down unnecessary metabolic processes in our, our cells. We go into a, a sort of a maintenance or quiescent mode. Some internal housekeeping takes place, the autophagy processes, um, to kind of clean things up. And the cells just go into what I call st- stealth mode and they just wait for the fuel to start up again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, chemotherapy is chemically targeted at the uh, metabolic processes of fast growth or fast metabolism. So that's kind of what the chemo is looking for. It's looking for the markers of fast metabolism. And the cancer can't downregulate, but when you've downregulated your healthy cells, they're literally below the radar and the chemo just flies right over them and heads for those cancer cells that have the big red flashing lights on them and does its job there. So side effects of chemotherapy are because that drug has affected your healthy, rapidly um, multiplying or rapidly growing cells, especially in adults. We don't have a lot of rapidly growing cells, but what we do have are things like our hair follicles, which are constantly growing. Or producing new material and the lining of our GI tract, everything from the mouth to the anus is, you know, sloughing off cells all the time and creating new cells. And, and so that process, um, is susceptible to chemotherapy damage. Mm. And then the other one that's a real big deal is your bone marrow because your bone marrow is where your body produces all of the, uh, red and white blood cells, the immune system cells, the platelets. So all of those blood components that are really important. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another area that gets smacked down by chemotherapy. Yeah. So yeah. if you're fasting, then those those cells are not activating or metabolizing yeah, yeah. as quickly or as much. So the chemo doesn't hit them as hard. Is that what you're saying? That's what happens. Yep. Particularly what I found the, the first, the symptoms you get in the first three or four days after chemo are mostly GI symptoms. So gastrointestinal symptoms. So the nausea, the vomiting, the mouth sores, the, you know, the, the bowel issues, whether it's diarrhea or constipation, it can be either or both. And I went through six rounds of full on chemo. This wasn't, you know, lightened up in any way. I basically told my oncologist, hit me with your best shot because I only plan on doing this once. And, um, and my response was almost no nausea, never threw up yep. once in six cycles, never missed a meal unless I was fasting. And I never missed making a meal, even when I was fasting. I mean, I, I would, I never, I never had the GI issues. The only problem I got into was some problems in the first cycle. I got into problems with constipation because the, the anti-nausea meds that they give you as a pre-med, as a pre-drug before the chemo and the, the high dose dexamethasone, which they give you to provide or prevent an inflammatory response to the chemo. Those drugs can be quite constipating. 
And I didn't pay enough attention because I've never had one of those problems before and my body's just always behaved itself and done what it was supposed to. And so I just kept going, oh, yeah, it'll be okay. Oh, yeah, it'll be okay. Yeah, no, it wasn't okay. (laughs) But by the second round, I had figured out some dietary strategies um, to help get myself through. And I never had a problem with uh, constipation after that. Yeah. So did you lose, did you lose your hair? Oh, yes. All of it or just all of it. Yeah. So the, the hair falls out between the first and second treatment. By the time you go back for the second treatment, you don't usually do not have hair or at least I chose to shave it off because I didn't want to just have it all falling out everywhere. I've always had short hair. Um, but I had got it cut shorter just before, just before I was expecting it to fall out. And, um, and it fell out right on schedule about two weeks after. So one thing I just wondered because you said the healthy cells sort of go into stealth mode. And I wondered if maybe they'd avoided the chemo, but obviously not. No, no. So the, the chemo drug stays in your system for about three weeks. So being in ketosis is great for stressing the cancer cells on an ongoing basis, right? Um, and the fasting is great for the short term or right, right around the chemo administration and those GI symptoms. But the drug continues to work particularly through the second week. And that's when things like the bone marrow gets knocked down and the hair follicles get damaged and stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, two weeks after my first treatment, my hair started falling out and I spent a day kind of pulling and poking at my hair and, you know, building these little bird nests on it, on a tissue of, you know, my hair falling out. And the next morning, um, I, I got my husband to shave my head. And actually it was, it was pretty funny. We have some hilarious photos of, of us doing that. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I have, as I told you, I have two sons and a husband. I have been cutting their hair for years. So we had a clipper, you know, a, a barber set at home already. And, and so we just did it. What, what amazed me though was how cold my head was. Yeah. No idea how much insulation is in even short hair until you haven't got it. I mean, I stood up from getting my hair shaved, walked across my own kitchen and just, it, it was painful. The cold hair or the cold air on my head was painful. So I wore, um, a, what Canadians call a toque or a, a beanie, like a, a knit hat. Um, for the entire, and it was, it was January too in Ontario, like it was Canadian winter. So basically I wore a hat 24 hours a day, even to sleep, um, for, uh, for about the next five months. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a cold time for you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't even sleep with a, without it. Um, I couldn't put my head on a pillow. It was too painful because it was cold. Yeah. So, so we know now that a lot of cancers are caused, I'm not going to say caused because that's not the right word, but influenced by the amount of sugar we eat, Mm -hmm. starches on grains and things that break down into sugar, carbohydrates when they break down into sugar. Why do you think general practice isn't suggesting that we reduce our, our sugar intake? A, generally, considering that we have gone from I can't remember the numbers. Is it one in 60 in the early 1900s having cancer to one in three? Um, Why are other people not getting on board with this metabolism side of, I mean, 
of cancer because I know I know they got into the genes in the 60s 70s and that that was their focus and they'd sort of lost track of I mean I know you talk about the Warburg effect yeah. um of Otto Warburg pre World War II looking at metabolism and cancer because Hitler had this this idea that he wants to um find a solution to cancer and so Otto Warburg was the person that was chosen to do that um and I know they got into the gene side but now we're now 50 years down the line why why aren't things changing because the conventional wisdom is still that fats and animal products are bad and grains and plant foods are good and we have to get past that on a vast level before we can actually start applying it to a specific condition level. I mean, it's the same argument for diabetes and for heart disease and, you know, and all of the chronic illnesses that have been caused by how we've eaten for the last hundred years and the, you know, the crap that we've put into our food supply and into our system. And until it, it's really about following the money, yeah. you know, right? When it comes right down to it. Um, and until we can get past that, this is going to be a, an outlier message. But I guess when I found out after 35 years of being a dietitian that this whole field of cancer metabolism existed, I was angry that I didn't know. And I was angry that there was this really effective treatment that people weren't being told about the, the cancer center dietitians don't know, you know, they, they may be starting to know about it. And there are some out there that, that absolutely do. I met a whole bunch of them at metabolic health summit in uh, California in, in May, but there's tons more that don't. And the doctors don't understand it. And, and they're still, they're still stuck in the gene, um, the gene theories to the exclusion of all else. And it's not that the gene theory isn't important, but it's not the only approach. And, you know, and it's not that a, a keto diet or avoiding sugar will cure cancer because nobody's saying it'll cure cancer, but it certainly is a powerful adjuvant to uh, the treatments that will actually, you know, damage and, and kill cancer cells. And so, and, and for overall general health, it's definitely more the way to go, but it's, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, things, things are starting to move. The, the diabetes associations in, in the U.S. and Canada now have acknowledged that low carb and very low carb is actually a, a safe and reasonable alternative for treating diabetes. Uh -huh. And those are national associations. That's a real big deal. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where it starts and things will eventually start to um, move away from where we've been for the last 50 years that has brought us to this really horrible health situation in all of really all Western countries. And of course, we have been exporting our bad habits to the rest of the world. Yeah. Right. So every, every, almost every country follows what Amer America does. So, and I guess you're the first ones to do that because you're closest maybe but yeah the uk follows soon behind and even things that have been proven you know i i'd go as far to say the education system that 
was failing in America. But why did the UK take it up and follow it? I'm not sure. It's 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 strange, really strange. No, I yeah. know. But you you got you got to look back into things like agriculture and industry, and what are they producing? And then they have to find markets for what they're producing. You know, and that's how in things like industrial seed oils and the you know there's get into the food system. And if you're if you're going to post war, you know, produce all these fertilizers and have this huge what they call the green revolution, where you you know you you've increased the yields of all these commodity crops, but they don't provide food just the way they're coming off the field. They've got to be processed into something, right? And then you have to create a market for that something. So you end up with you know cheesies or <laughs> something. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, there's billions of dollars tied up in that. And also, you know, we've mentioned this a few times on the podcast is the, you know, you said follow the money is the drug companies wanting to make money. They don't really care whether we're sick or healthy. Oh, no. They just want us to take the drugs. And so if they can put cancer down to a gene and we, there are so many different genes and so many different cancers, well, if that drug doesn't work, we'll make this other one for you to buy and purchase, whether it's the NHS or your social care system in Canada or the actual end patient or the insurance company paying in America. It doesn't really matter who's paying for it. Somebody pays for it in the end. Yep. You know, they're, they're fulfilling their, their shareholder obligations by creating profit. And Healthy people don't make money for the drug companies. Cured people don't make money for the drug companies. The people who make the most money for the drug companies are the ones who are chronically ill and need medication to control it. So who is that? Diabetics and people on statins. You yeah. know, um, and, and yeah. Arthritis, arthritis, and yeah, all those inflammatory diseases. And yeah. yeah, I mean, cancer is a little different in that cancer kills a lot more people. Yeah. Um, you know, and you don't tend to be sick with it as long, but, uh, but still, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. Um, partly because we want evidence to prove that this is as, as effective as it is, but there isn't, you know, the drug companies, um, they, they fund a lot of the research around, uh, medical interventions and, so somebody has to pay for those research studies to be done. And there's no, there's no money to be made on health, you know, making people healthy using diet, dietary interventions or food. So like, who's going to pay for it? Right. Mm. It just kind of needs to come out of the public good, you know, but it's again, it's all about the money. Yeah. So I'm just going to switch a bit to, to you working because you work in care homes and now you, you, you've got this open awakening, if you like, of low carb, more fats. How does that fit in? And you're the dietitian in the care home. How does that fit in? Are you constantly um, being challenged about it? Uh, no, I, in the, in long-term care in particular Ontario, but in Canada, we have regulations that we have to follow. Um, and the regulation also includes the dietary service and the menus that we provide. So we have to follow what we did until recently, have to follow Canada's food guide, which means you have to serve the right number of servings of grains and fruits and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the legislation has just been changed actually since COVID and partly because of COVID. And so the, the new guidelines are allowing us to, to have a little more flexibility 
plus the new Canada's Food Guide that came out um, a couple of years ago does not have portion sizes attached to it. It has some more general guidelines. Um, it goes part way, not all the way, mm. to um, healthier, low carb sort of guidelines. In fact, it kind of pushes plant based a little more than some of us would like. But, um, but anyways, so there's there's some leeway there. But on an individual basis, I try and get a few things in place, like adding flax meal to our hot cereal in the morning as a source of healthy fats, but also a source of fiber. You know, um, I, I can't get them to use butter because it costs too much. So margarine is still the fat of choice, unfortunately. No. Um, those are the the limitations of a publicly funded system. You know, they have a food budget they have to live within. So... I'm, that's one of the reasons that following my passion into low carb has led me to the private practice and writing the book and, you know, now doing the, the cancer coaching online and things that I've been doing, um, to allow me to use those things that I know work and that I'm passionate to share. Yeah. Long-term care pays the bills and, uh, and then now, this is yeah. your passion. This is my passion. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So how are you how are you helping people? Is it a support group? Is it education? Is are you, are you just incorporating your primal health coaching with a cancer so, focus? Well, I'm doing a few different things right at the moment. Um I of course started a blog when I got cancer and then after that I wrote the book, Hacking Chemo, using ketogenic diet, therapeutic fasting and a kick-ass attitude to power through cancer to try and share my story because I know that I wanted people's stories when I was looking, um, when I first got diagnosed and, and to share the interventions that I found that were helpful and, you know, some practical how to's, but also the spiritual, emotional, social stuff that we talked about. Like there's, there's just so many different aspects to it. And then once cancer treatment was over and, and the book was out, I wanted to do some cancer coaching, helping other people on a one-to-one basis for people who want that. Um, I've created an online course or I had created an online course, um, through Udemy to try and tell people that story. And I've, I've been a speaker at the, um, the low carb women's long weekend a couple of years ago, um, out of Australia, uh, Tracy McBeath's, um, uh, conference. She's a primal health coach as well. Okay. And, um, so I, you know, I've done some things like that to try and get it out, but, I'm limited. I can't act as a dietitian, a registered dietitian, and be prescriptive outside of my province of licensing. So I can do general education and health coaching to people who are outside of Ontario, but I can't be a dietitian for those people. So I had to kind of find find my way to helping people without, um, you know, without overstepping my my license. No. Yeah, so that's why I've been doing some general health coaching. Um, I have joined um, a team of people who, with uh, Miriam Kalanian, who wrote Keto for Cancer. Oh, yeah. And I am, yeah, and I am helping her with some of her clients right now. So, yeah, and I'm writing a new course for the Primal Health Coach Institute. I also am working on that right at the moment. So Excellent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so lots of things to keep me busy. So... So the, you were low carb before you got the cancer diagnosis. You carried on being low carb and then using the fasting around your chemotherapy. 
how would you describe your way of eating nowadays? Well, I went full on keto for the five, six months that I was in chemotherapy. I was really strict and, and stayed in ketosis that whole time, plus the, the fasting through the treatments. After that, I um, loosened up. I, I don't live in ketosis all the time. Um, I have been in ketosis a fair bit this spring and doing some intermittent fasting because I wanted to get my COVID eight pounds off. Um, and I managed to do that. I've, I've got that gone, which is great. Um, but most of the time I kind of skirt around the edge of ketosis. I eat low carb. I eat local. I eat whole foods. There's not a lot of processed foods. Um, my husband is not fully low carb. He, but when he has grains, as in bread or breakfast cereal or pasta or anything like that, it's all organic, uh, to avoid the glyphosates. I use some of the, the bread and pasta alternatives, like the konjac noodles or the low carb breads, that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I like to eat in season. I live where I can drive up to my farmer's front porch and buy regeneratively grown um, meat within yep. 10 minutes of home. Um, I'm very, very fortunate that way. And, uh, so doesn't mean I don't eat the occasional potato chip. Um, they, if anything's a weakness, that's it. At least once a year, I have homemade ice cream from the, the little general store that's famous for that, not too far away. Um, Usually, though, I, I ride my bike there, and it's about a 25-kilometer ride. So by the time I get there, I've earned the ice cream. <laughs> You've um, burnt it off by the time you get there and back. And then I have to get home again. That's right. And uh, and I will have the occasional alcoholic beverage, usually um, just a, a, a high-quality sipping rum that I have once in a while. Not much for wine or beer. But uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how I live. I have my own backyard chickens, so we ha- we have fresh eggs and and. Uh, uh, I keep thinking I'd like them. I live right next door to my mum, but she wouldn't like us having chickens. And also, I'm I'm a bit lazy. I'm not sure I'd enjoy looking after them. I just, just want don't get egg. a rooster. Just don't get a rooster. The chickens are fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and we have lots of foxes around here, so maybe not a good thing. You do have, yeah, I do too. I live in a rural area with with predators. You really have to have them well uh, well protected with uh, with a good fencing and stuff like that. But I'm married to a German engineer. He built a he built me a chicken run that'll withstand the end of time. So <laughs> yeah, we've got a neighbor. He's he's about uh, half a mile down the road, and um, he he's got a, a huge chicken run, but it, he's got it's really deep dug deep and it's he's got electric fences to keep the foxes out oh excellent super duper one yeah (laughs) so is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to bring up today um no i think you've done a pretty good job of i mean there's there's tons more that we could talk about in terms of what cancer how it works all that kind of stuff but um go on then go with something choose something (laughs) you want to tell us about I guess I want people to know, and and maybe this falls into your top tips, I don't know, but I want people to know that emotionally, when you get cancer, it's not a death sentence, that cancer is, um, it's a process that you have to go through, that a lot of it sucks, 
but you, um, and, and it makes you feel vulnerable, particularly if you're not someone who normally feels vulnerable. And so you have to change your, your mental attitude just as much as you do the physical things that you do to get yourself through cancer. Mm. I didn't understand that before. Yeah. And there's a lot of changes that go on. And I think reading the book really gave me an insight to all the things that you almost have to have to think about or you are going to have to change. And, and I, you know, I definitely recommend anybody reading that book, whether you have cancer or not, but we all know somebody who's been through cancer. So just on an understanding level of knowing what's going on for them, and they might not have the same cancer as you, and it might not be exactly the same, but it just gives you an insight to to what's going on. Yeah. Levels. And, you know, everybody everybody has a different journey, obviously, and some people are dealing with, um, you know, dealing with it in a different way. If you, for example, are diagnosed with a tumor, and then the tumor is going to stay in your body while they perhaps irradiate it or while they do chemotherapy. And you know that that tumor's in there. Like, that's a different situation than what I had. Mm. Time I knew I had cancer, it was gone. Yeah. You know, and I, I still had to deal with the follow up, but, um, I don't know what it would feel like to, to know that that's in there. Right. But the other thing that really came out, is that, um, you know, people think of cancer as like an enemy or as a foreign invader. And what really impressed me is that cancer is yourself. It's your own cells. And they're misguided and they're damaged and they're doing things that are, um, are dangerous to you and your well-being. But it's still, it's not, it hasn't come in from the outside. It's yourself. Right. And yeah. And I really, um, I had to learn to love myself to, to approach instead of approaching this whole cancer journey from a position of, um, of fear, like being, you know, I'm, I'm helpless. Just tell me what to do. You know, I'm terrified. I'm, I'm paralyzed with fear, that sort of thing. Or the, anger warrior, um, you know, fighting it every step of the way sort of mentality. And not that I wasn't doing everything I could possibly do to help myself, but I was not doing it from a, a direction of being a warrior. Um, that's a very stressful place to put your, your, your body and your brain and your hormone levels and everything. You just, you don't want to be under that kind of chronic stress. So, I decided, I actively decided that I was going to approach this whole thing from the direction of love, mm. love. and connecting to the universe, connecting to spirit, um, you know, being part of that universal energy, however people understand it. I mean, in, in my upbringing, it was called God, but everybody has their own way of understanding it. And that I was going to, to love myself. and. Um, and I would make a point of, of having some meditative time when I was, when I was focusing self love on myself, on my belly, <laughs> where I knew that those cancer cells might be like in my, my pelvic cavity. And I'd put my hands on my belly and at night and I would focus 
on that and just sort of send love to that area. And, um, and, and you have, I mean, you have to, you have to get past the paralysis and you have to turn your back on the anger or the fighting in order to find that, that love direction. Right. Yeah. But I really think that's important. Yeah. And in a way you have to feed your healthy cells. Mm-hmm. So that you end up having more healthy cells than unhealthy cells. Yeah. And, and put your body, you, again, that's that state of love for yourself and for your body and for everything within it. So that the, the good part, the good part can almost grow and let go of the, the bad bit. Yeah. I liken it to decluttering with Marie Kondo. <laughs> you know, she says, if something in your life doesn't spark joy, thank it for its role in your life and let it go. Yeah. Right. And it's like, that's how I would like to think about the cancer. It's like, it's not sparking joy. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but thank you for your role in my life. And now you can go. Yeah. You know, and, um, yeah, it, that, that really encapsulated it for me was, I mean, the cancer veered me into a whole new path, into a whole new passion. I mean, I I love what I do now in terms of helping people to get the message that there is a metabolic intervention for for dealing with cancer, for preventing cancer, but also for actively treating cancer and helping people through that. And a lot of the coaching that I do isn't even around food as much as it's around that spiritual stuff and you don't be so hard on yourself don't be terrified you know good is don't let perfection get in the way of good like do these things for yourself but cut yourself some slack too i mean you are going through a disease process and a treatment that is really harsh you know and and so that that message is really important to me Mm. and also a body in stress is not going to cope as well as somebody that's not stressed so letting go of that stress is going to be just as important as what you're eating and you know just looking after yourself in terms of sleep and movement you know you might be feeling not great but you almost still need to move in whichever way you can and even if it's that's getting up from the sofa and just walking across the room and back again you still need to incorporate that movement as much as you can and and doing these little things that that give you, you know, some power back in a way, but also mm-hmm. allow you to to take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah, and and like I say, to to take care of your caregiver. I mean, if I got out of my chair and went and emptied the dishwasher, I mean, I, I'm doing something. I'm helping, right? And, yeah. and which makes me feel like I still have some control. It's helping my hus- my husband or whoever your caregiver happens to be not have to do that little chore. And it's getting me upright and moving around a little bit. And, you know, like those are, those are all good things. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people get in contact with you? Well, I have a website. It's just my name, Martha Um, there is my blog. Uh, links to the book. Um, it's available on Amazon on all the different platforms, um, internationally, as well as in wide distribution through Barnes and Noble and, and, uh, chapters in Canada and all the different print locations. It's available as an ebook and a, uh, print on demand paperback. 
Um, I have a Facebook page called Hacking Chemo. And so I post interesting things there. Um, it's really the only social media that I'm involved with. I don't do Instagram or Twitter or any of those things, but the website is probably the best place. And there's a contact me form there. Um, there's a work with me page that describes the cancer coaching program that I have aside from the one where I work with Miriam. So excellent. So now we're going to ask you for your three top tips. My three top tips. Okay. Um, yeah. First one would be eat locally and seasonally. Mm-hmm. Right. That would be the first one. Um, as much as you can support regenerative agriculture as much as you can. Yeah. Okay. That is farmers who are working to save our land, not just the mega farms and the chemical stuff. Find a regenerative farmer and support them, whether it's at a farmer's market or at their, their front gate or whatever. Ask the questions. Support regenerative agriculture. And the third one is to love yourself. Yeah. Don't be, don't be angry at yourself. Don't be blaming yourself. You know, don't, don't second guess yourself. Do, do whatever you do for your health from a position of loving yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so important. Really, really important because that's where, that's where the healing comes from. Absolutely. Healing both physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually and everything. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you, Martha. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jackie. I really hope that your audience will, uh, will get something out of our conversation. I'm sure they will. I'm sure there's, there is, I'm sure every listener that's listening will know somebody, know maybe even themselves that have had something like that and just a little more understanding and a little more, little more understanding of there are other things that we could do and there are other treatments that we could do as well. Um, not just standard. 50 year old ones as well. So yes, be empowered. Yeah. Be a badass. (laughs) And it's, and it's not the death sentence that it was. Oh, absolutely. No, it's not. No. Um, it, in in a lot of cases now can be just, it can be changed from a death sentence into a chronic disease, something that you manage on a long-term basis, like diabetes or, you know, um, inflammatory diseases you, you just you deal with them mm. by lifestyle and possibly medications and things like that so are you do you still have any ongoing treatments zero nothing nothing since the chemo no so and i'm three years out from the more than three years out now from the end of my chemotherapy so no absolutely nothing i get blood work done um every three months to monitor a blood marker for ovarian cancer called CA125. And um, it never went very high. Even when I had the cancer, it went up to 42 and the top of the normal range is 36. And by the end of treatment, it had dropped down to five and it has never moved off the number five for the last three years. Uh, I just checked two weeks ago. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you, Martha, for sharing your story with us. Cancer is such a difficult topic for many of us, as we have known or know people with cancer. 
One of the things that Martha mentioned and I'd never really considered before was about telling people that you have a cancer diagnosis and having to deal with the different responses. Depending on our prior experience of cancer, this will affect how we take the news that this person has been diagnosed with cancer. You know, you never know how people are going to respond because of their own previous interactions with cancer. In episode 93, Dr. Jim Waller spoke about how fasting through chemo is extremely beneficial and how often less chemo is needed. Martha tells us how it alleviated some of those side effects. While most of the medical profession are still stuck in the gene theories, it's still worth looking at cancer as a chronic metabolic disease. Many of the more common cancers are linked to metabolism. And Dr. Unwin spoke about this and we've other, other guests have also mentioned it. This knowledge that we had of cancer being a metabolic element was lost with the Second World War as most of the research had been done in Germany. In the show notes, you can find a link to Martha's book. The book covers both dealing with cancer and goes into more depth about Martha's story. She also covers the social aspect and creating support around you. And she also shares the protocol of fasting through chemo. The show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash one zero two. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>